Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Trinity Lothian. Trinity is a wheelchair fencer in Canada and she's pretty new to the sport, getting you know lots of experience but also doing very well for someone who's quite young. She also has a unique way of being fed which is very uncommon for an athlete and we will talk a little bit about that. So welcome to the podcast Trinity. Thank you and thanks for having me. Oh it's good to have you join us. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, your impairment and how you got into wheelchair fencing. Perfect. So when I was younger like really from the age of four onwards, I was super active in able-bodied sports and I did water polo and biathlon were my main Mm. sports. And then it wasn't until high school when I was about 14, 15, that I started to get pretty sick. And I spent a few years in the hospital in and out just because I wasn't able to eat. And we'll talk more on that later, but I was just Mm. getting sicker and sicker with my body. Eventually, I got a diagnosis that was basically a nerve disorder that was impacting all of my nerves. And I started a treatment for that. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, the treatment caused me to have meningitis. And Mm. that's what ultimately led to my impairment and the loss of function in my legs, loss of coordination and motor and sensory function. Mm -hmm. So since then, since I had meningitis, I've been into para-sport instead of able-bodied sport. Mm. And so the original neurological problems that you were having, did they also affect your muscles or was that more just mostly affecting your gut and some other organs? So officially it was an autoimmune autonomic neuropathy, so affecting all of the autonomic nervous system. Mm -hmm. So that's everything that you control without thinking about. So like breathing, heart rate, digestion, bladder function, Mm -hmm. all of that. So other than being fatigued and passing out, I was still able to walk and do like active things. Um, So it wasn't until the meningitis that the motor and sensory function declined. Mm -hmm. And so do you have to mobilize in a wheelchair throughout the day or are you able to mobilize with the, the support of some crutches or, or other items? Mm-hmm. So I currently am a full-time wheelchair user mm-hmm. before my second bout of meningitis. So I had meningitis twice before the second time I was able to get around my house, kind of like scooching around, holding on to things, but for anything outside of the house, really where there wasn't like carpet that I could fall onto, I was using my chair. But now from when I get out of bed to when I get into bed, I'm in my chair. Mm. And so what's your classification for wheelchair fencing? So for wheelchair fencing, I'm a category B athlete. There's only three different categories, A, B, and C. Mm -hmm. And A is the least impaired, only like a lower limb impairment. And category B is my category and it's lower limbs and trunk control. So things like Mm -hmm. balance and using my abs to move around. There's also category C, which isn't in the Paralympics and is more of a full body being affected. When I was classified, 
I was in between a B and a C, so I'm being reevaluated in a few months just to see where I fall. They wanted to reevaluate me just because I was so new to the sport and also new to my impairment. So mm. they left me in class B, but I'm not sure in a few months if that will change. Uh-huh. And so how did you come about wheelchair fencing? Like, is it something, had you fenced before your impairment or is it something that just came up when you were doing some research on para sports? So it was kind of random. I was always into those kind of like niche fringe sports, um, like water polo and biathlon really aren't popular in Canada at all. Mm-hmm. And so I was into those niche sports and I had fenced once with my university able-bodied and decided it really wasn't for me. I preferred the endurance sports. <laughs> but then after getting sick and realizing that I would be eligible for competing in para sports, I knew that wheelchair fencing also wasn't very popular in Canada mm-hmm. and that that would mean that it would be in my head, I thought, okay, that means it will be really easy for me to make the national team and be able to travel with this. But what mm-hmm. I didn't realize was that it means that there's no funding and no support for it <laughs> and really difficult to do anything really well with it. Um, yeah. So yeah. that's why I chose it. Uh-huh. And so what does your training look like for wheelchair fencing? What, how do you balance that throughout the day? So because I'm still a full-time student in university, most of my Mm. training is in the evenings. So for fencing, I'll do probably four to five times a week. I'll train in the gym and that's probably for like a two to three hour session. We do some coordination work, some lessons, and then just bouting and doing matches um, Mm -hmm. with other athletes. I'm the only para-athlete at the club. So everyone else who fences with me, they just sit down to fence uh-huh. me, but they're completely able-bodied. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so that's mostly in the evening? Yeah. So sometimes me and my coach will meet up earlier in the day if I'm free to do something, but otherwise most of the group sessions where I'm training with other people are in the evenings. Mm. I'll do strength and conditioning by myself a few times a week. And I also am on the provincial cross-country skiing team and so for that I have different dry land training activities in the summer and things on the snow in winter. So you're not really a big achiever are you? (laughs) No I like to keep my plate very light. (laughs) And, And what are you studying at university? I'm studying nutrition so it's very very um relevant. Yeah yeah for sure and In terms of all of that, how has your health been? Because obviously, you know, with two bouts of of meningitis already, is that something that you have to kind of be really careful to monitor yourself and make sure that you you sort of don't put yourself into too big a stress load? Yeah, especially because the treatment that I was on that was helping was the one that caused meningitis. And so Mm. since having to stop that treatment, I haven't been back on an effective treatment yet so it's been difficult to manage my health from a symptomatic perspective and then the one thing that does help is steroids but then I need to get a TUE therapeutic Mm. use exemption for that and so 
they really want to keep that to a minimum. And of course, steroids long-term aren't an option that's great for your body either. So Mm -hmm. it's a tricky balance just to manage things for me right now. Mm -hmm. And then also to keep, because I am busy between school and sports and just general things in life, to keep a balance where I don't do too much and then end up crashing. Yeah, yeah. And so talk to us a little bit more about the nutrition side of things. With your original neurological impairment, you were having a lot of trouble just being able to eat food. So where are you at with that? So since 2018, I've been fed by TBN, so fed intravenously. And it's definitely been a journey. I was doing it inpatient from the hospital until I turned 18. And then once I turned 18, uh, I was able to do it from home because Mm -hmm. in the city I'm in, in Canada, we don't have a pediatric home TPN program. So I had to wait until I turned 18. Mm -hmm. But since turning 18, I've been able to manage everything pretty independently from home and haven't had too many complications, which is pretty rare. And Mm. I'm very thankful for that. So it's definitely been interesting. And I have very interesting hydration requirements as well. So it's been a lot of trial and error to find what works for me nutrition wise and hydration wise. Okay. So talk to us a little bit more about that. This, this is intravenous nutrition. So you have a permanent catheter that's into one of your major veins and obviously so there's a whole lot of hygiene requirements to make sure that that's kept clean because that is a direct entry into your bloodstream. How does the nutrition and the hydration look? Like, Can you give us a little bit of a picture of how that's managed? Yes, so... So first of all, for the catheter, actually, I had a few complications with that when I started fencing because it was on the right side of my chest, which is Mm -hmm. the primary target for fencing. (laughs) And my doctors were not very comfortable with that. So I had to have surgery to have it switched to the left side of my Mm. chest, which was a pretty big decision because it meant that I lost the vascular access point for the right side of my body. So that was just something where I really had to pick the quality of my life with fencing was a bit more important to me than the medical risks that could happen. Mm -hmm. But in terms of TPN, so right now for my nutrition, I run it during the day over 12 hours. And so in the morning, my mom will set it up for me. She needs to inject some vitamins and medications into the bag. So I run two liters Mm -hmm. through a pump. And once I connect, I'm pretty much attached to my backpack that has my fluids and TPN and pump in it for the whole day. And then Mm -hmm. I run fluids, usually by gravity overnight. So I'll just hook them up either on an IV pole or a hook that's near my closet and just chill in bed and get hydrated overnight. And so that two liter bag that you have that feeds you with all of your protein and all of your carb needs for the day, and the pump, how much does that weigh that you're carrying in a backpack? So the bag, it's about two liters, so that's two kilos. Mm-hmm. And then the pump is, it's very small and compact. It's probably just another kilo. Mm-hmm. But the good thing about it is through the day, it gets lighter as yep. I run it. So, and it's just, I keep it just on the back of my 
wheelchair. So it's not like I'm carrying it around and it's probably Mm. more convenient that way than if I was up and about and walking. But your ability to move out of your chair because you're attached to something, you've got this line that's attached between that backpack and your entry point into your vein. How much wiggle room do you have if you're moving around in your chair? Have you got like a half a meter wiggle room or a meter wiggle room in that line? Uh, yes, looking at it now, it's probably probably even a meter and a half. So it's decent, like say for transfers in and out of the car, I can just leave it attached to my chair, do my transfer and then move my backpack. Mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily need to have it on my lap or have it with me. And that makes it a bit more convenient, but it still just feels like I'm attached to a leash. 24 7 pretty much (laughs) yeah and with your fencing there's a lot of movement in the fencing have you ever got caught up in in that line at all or is it usually pretty well tucked away underneath your clothing yeah it's pretty well tucked away and then I just keep the bag I just basically throw it under my fencing chair and then there's a platform that it sits on Mm -hmm. so that it doesn't move there's been a few times though where the line, for example, has gotten kinked or my chair has like moved over the line and then Mm. it doesn't bother me until the pump starts beeping and then it's just kind of awkward. (laughs) Um, But then there's been a few times too where for fencing we have an electric wire that plugs into a machine so that you can see when you got hit or when you make a hit and it pretty much comes out of my clothes right beside my line from TPN. So there's been a few times where I mean to pull on the electric wire uh, to fix something and I end up pulling my TPN and oh no. I usually catch it before it goes bad, but I'm certain that one day I might just pull it a bit too hard. <laughs> oh man, not really what anybody else thinks about, but the reality of, of how you have to be fed Do the doctors think there's any likelihood that your gut will pick up again at any point in time? Or is that something that they feel is is really a permanent state of being? So when I started TPN and we didn't have an official diagnosis or really know what was going on, I was told, oh, it's just you'll just need a bit of gut rest with TPN and in a few months or years with a bit of rest, you'll be able to tolerate things again. But since trying a lot more treatments, failing a lot more treatments, and getting a diagnosis that is progressive. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't seem like unless medical technology and science gets to a point where they have more answers, there's really no solution. The like transplant is an option, but it's only an option if I have a lot more complications and even then transplant isn't a perfect solution. Mm. So we're really keeping that off of the table. Yeah. And so when studying nutrition, are there there times where you you sort of, you're talking about foods, because obviously that's an important part of nutrition (laughs) to talk about real foods. Are there times where you, you kind of miss being able to taste food and eat food? Yeah, definitely. And I was always interested in nutrition. Like, I loved baking and cooking. And I still do Mm. love baking and cooking. But it's just not the best thing for my mental health to be around food so much and not be able to eat it. I used to 
try a lot to be at the dinner table with my family when they'd have meals. But that also just got too hard mentally. Like I want to spend time with my family, but it's really hard to be around people when they're eating and around the smell Mm. of food and just in that environment. Yeah. Yeah. So there's been a lot that you've had to to try and manage. With the TPN, you made a, a change recently in terms of how you time that. So you used to do most of your feeds overnight and now you do your feeding during the day. What sort of difference has that made in terms of your ability to do your training? Mm-hmm. So when I was doing it overnight, that was what I had been doing for a few years because it's pretty standard for home TPN patients to be able to be disconnected during the day and to do the things that they want to do. But mm-hmm. for me, once I started fencing, the things that I wanted to do were in the evening and involved using a lot of calories and using a lot of energy. And so when I was still running TPN at night, I was training, having essentially fasted and not mm-hmm. gotten any energy for 12 hours before it. Yep. So I was exhausted and it was really affecting my performance and also my recovery um, Mm. from the training sessions. So I switched switched it to doing it during the daytime. And it was annoying at first. And before making the switch, I was very against doing it in the daytime because I was not wanting to be connected during the Mm. day. But once I made the switch, I realized that wow, like I have so much energy and the difference in my energy was literally night and day. Mm. Um, I was able to make it through an entire training session and feel good after it, which made such a difference and has definitely been worth it. And does that also impact on your ability to concentrate at uni? I think so. My path at uni has been a bit unconventional and I've been doing a lot of it in a bit of like a hybrid virtual style even though everything is in person so just with my health and appointments I do as much as I can from home and Mm -hmm. because I did essentially all of high school from the hospital I am pretty good at teaching Mm -hmm. myself things and going through things so I'm not missing out on material that way so I'm able to focus in a different way and chunk things up a bit more Mm -hmm. so I found that it hasn't really made a huge difference with that because I was also used to doing high school basically on zero calories and being starved for most of it so (laughs) it hasn't been that different yeah so yeah Yeah. and so you said that the club that you fence at don't have any other wheelchair fences how did they go about understanding what the requirements of a wheelchair fencer were and how to fence as a wheelchair fencer. Was that something that they had to do a lot of learning on or have you been working it through with each other and teaching each other along the way? Mm -hmm. So I was really lucky. The club that I train at, we have two former Olympic coaches and one of them is a former Paralympic coach for Team Canada. Mm. So they had already a really good basis of understanding of the sport and what plays into it and so when I came it wasn't necessarily anything that was super new and it wasn't anything that they were new at either and so they were able to integrate me 
immediately into the club with everybody who is able-bodied and -hmm. for the other fencers it was explained to me by the coaches that when an able-bodied fencer has an injury like an ACL injury or a sprained ankle or something like that they fence seated anyways just to Mm. continue their training so a lot of the fencers at the club were already fencing seated and already had experience fencing each other from a chair so it wasn't that different for most of them either and they do really appreciate fencing with me because they're able to work on certain skills that they aren't really focusing on when they're fencing quote-unquote regularly okay oh so that's a a win-win for everyone isn't it Mm -hmm. yeah yeah especially because they don't have any impairments so they have a much bigger range of motion which makes it a lot harder for me to fence them but they equally don't have the specific wheelchair fencing skills so we were pretty even on the front of where we are with skills yeah and so with your neurological impairment now do you have to use any supports in terms of do you have to be strapped into the chair or do you have enough control abdominal wise and core wise to actually be able to get yourself around in the chair without necessarily using some sort of restraint? Mm -hmm. So when I was classified, they give you different permissions for different straps and aids. And so for me, I have my feet and thighs and knees strap down, which is pretty typical for most fencers, regardless of impairment. Mm -hmm. And then I also have on my left hand, which is the one that holds onto the chair and allows me to move back and forth because I don't have the ab strength to move back and forth for that hand. I have it essentially like strapped and tied to the bar on the chair because my grip strength in that hand isn't as strong. Mm -hmm. So I'm able to then be able to move forward and backwards without totally falling over just because Mm. that hand is strapped to the chair. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And so what recommendations do you have for other younger or even older? I mean, fencing's not an age-restricted sport, is it? So what what recommendations do you have for other potential para-athletes who may be interested in getting into wheelchair fencing? I think I would definitely recommend giving it a try. As I said, my passion really lies more with endurance sports. And so I consider fencing to be not the most physically demanding sport because you're really just active for three minutes at a time and those those times have breaks within them. Mm -hmm. But it's a very mentally demanding sport, which is why there's really no age limit. The oldest Team Canada para-athlete for any sport is a fencer. So Mm. it can really be as old or as young as you want. So I think just to give it a try because it really does improve a lot of mental skills as well as physical. And it's not, you can make it as more, as little physically demanding as you want it to be. Mm -hmm. And also it's based on your impairment. So it doesn't have to be the most difficult thing where you're racing a marathon. It's a lot more mental skills. And I think that anybody at any stage should work on those mental skills. Mm, absolutely. And I forgot to ask you earlier, you said that you have some specific hydration issues that you face. Can you talk a little bit about mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so even before I started any sports, I still had very high fluid requirements just because of GI losses from having a GI disorder. And then also from my blood pressure being so low, I really need a lot of hydration to Mm -hmm. increase that. So I was on four to five liters a day of hydration Mm. before I started playing sports. And so that was pretty excessive. And then once I started playing sports and sweating a lot with these sports, we knew that I needed more hydration, but there's not really any literature or experience with athletes and well on like intravenous nutrition and hydration. Mm. So it was a lot of trial and error working with my dietitian and a few of my nurses and doctors to figure out what worked for me. And thankfully, they were really great. We're all pretty equally experts or non-experts in this field and just Mm. learning as we go. So they let me, they basically would give me, say, like 30 liters of fluids a week and just let me use them however I felt that I needed them and then get back to them with what was working for me and what wasn't working for me. Mm. And so where have you tended to sit in terms of your total fluid needs over the whole day? So right now, I should, if I want to feel my best, it's usually around five liters. So I'll do my two liters of TPN. And then I usually do an additional liter during the day and then two liters overnight. Mm -hmm. But in full transparency, it's not always that easy to take care of my body and be that compliant with everything. Mm -hmm. So lately, it's definitely been a bit less than that just because it does feel like a burden a lot of the time to have to do all of this. Mm. But I try to do my best to keep everything on track just because I know that it makes me feel better physically. Mm. Yeah, that's, I mean, five litres for anyone is a is a huge amount of fluid to be able to get in, to have to have it all intravenously. It's not like you can just dump fluid into your veins, can you? You've got to be really careful about pacing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. So what recommendations do you have? I mean, you've obviously worked with a lot of practitioners in various sort of aspects of, of what you do both clinically and also within your sport. What are some of the biggest learnings that you've had and, and what recommendations do you have to practitioners when they're working with individuals who have some very unique needs? I think definitely one thing that I've learned from this experience and working with lots of other people, especially in this rather uncharted territory, which is the same for most athletes with impairments with specific nutrition needs. There's really not much literature on this. Mm. So doing trial and error, but listening to the athlete, listening to the patient and really working in collaboration as a team with them, Mm -hmm. because they're the experts on it. They're the ones feeling it. They're the ones doing everything. So even if a doctor, dietitian, somebody thinks that, oh, in theory, this is what should be working. But if in practice, that's not what, what's working, then mm. you need to reevaluate things and change something around because it's not working in practice and just listening to the athlete about what works for them and what doesn't work for them. Mm. And I guess there's some really big lessons in terms of, you know, if you look at the TPN side of things, it's extremely rare for 
it to be an athlete who is trying to work through the nuances of, of being fed intravenously. It's predominantly a clinical population. It's predominantly a very unwell clinical population that TPN is geared around. And so, you know, breaking new grounds and, and I think, it, you know, one of the clear messages is that you can be a high-level athlete whilst on TPN. It just takes a lot of careful management and adjustment and thinking a little bit differently than what the traditional thought processes will be. Mm -hmm. And I think when I started sports and when I started really needing to advocate for my nutrition needs, it was a bit difficult because typically I find the mindset with practitioners dealing with patients on TPN is, okay, you're alive, perfect. Like we've met our goal, Mm. you're alive, it's perfect. And it's not really anything beyond that. Mm. So when I wanted to go beyond just being alive it was kind of a bit of convincing on my part to tell them that it was something that was really important for me and mattered for me. And I was going to do it regardless of whether they were going to help me or not. Mm. So they were going to have to get on board. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well done to you for, for pushing the boundaries and, you know, looking after your needs and in terms of what gives you good quality of life and and what allows you to pursue your passion and being able to be an athlete at the same time as being a student I mean you know that in itself is enough of a challenge to have to face yeah it hasn't (laughs) been easy (laughs) and so how many years have you got left with your university I just have one year left right now the program that I'm in we do our practicum internship placements integrated with the program. So I'm doing my internships now, but I think just with Paris, the Paralympics coming up next summer and my Mm. internships, I'm thinking of extending my degree just a little bit longer so that I can focus more on training in the lead up to Paris. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Well, Trinity, I really appreciate your time and your advocacy and your willingness to to tell your story. And we certainly look forward to being able to see you on the stage in in Paris. Uh, I know that there's a lot of hoops to jump through between now and then, and it's just a matter of taking every day at a time. (laughs) So (laughs) we really wish you all the best and, and thank you very much for sharing your story with us. Thank you and thanks for having this chat with me. The challenges that Trinity has faced certainly don't fit within any textbook and she has certainly had to work pretty hard to find the best solutions for herself. As such, she's a great example of how para-athletes always make us think outside of the box and will always challenge our understanding of how the body works. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Kate Davis, who is the sports dietitian with the US goalball team.